Good morning, good evening, good afternoon, wherever you are in the world, welcome to the show. This is the Millennial Millionaire Podcast, and I am your host, Stephen Cohen. This podcast is focused on bringing some of the wisest minds from across the globe to discuss concepts, strategies, and ideals that will lead them to be top performers in their respective industries and their lives. This show is for the millennials and millennials at heart to transcend their mindset, their health, and their income to the next level. We are so excited to have you on this journey with us. Welcome to the show. What's up, what's up, what's up, everybody? Millennial millionaires out there, welcome to the show. Today's guest I am super excited about, one of my old fraternity brothers, Mr. Jake Gallen. Jake is the host of the Jake Gallen podcast with over 100,000 views and downloads. He's a crypto and NFT collector, speaker, and content creator, former three times founder and Las Vegas native, and has been featured in magazines like Forbes, Entrepreneur Magazine, My Vegas, and the Sotheby Auction House. Jake, welcome to the show, my friend. Dude, how exciting is this? This is episode four. You were on my show for episode three, a little over two and a half years ago. It's pretty crazy, man. You actually inspired me um, to create a podcast. Yeah, I remember you know being on your show what, uh, a couple times in the last couple of years, and at that point, you know, having a podcast, it, it wasn't even on my radar, and it wasn't until recently that I'm like, I, I, it looks like fun. I got to join the squad. The, the the amount of social capital that you can accrue from a podcast, I think, is unmatched compared to any other social media platform. When you, when you're on platforms like, let's say, YouTube or or Instagram or or Twitter, you're building fans, you're building a community. But a podcast, you're building relationships. So I propose this question a lot um, on social media: is that would you rather have a million fans or would you rather have a thousand well-connected entrepreneurs in your network? And that's kind of how I view podcasting. A hundred percent, man. I, I remember talking to you and my buddy Travis um, and, you know, asking like, hey, what's the biggest value you think you've got on your podcast? And, you know, I first thought, oh, monetization, you can obviously make money. But yeah, the networking aspect alone, you know, I remember watching a podcast, I forget who it was, but they're just like, everyone doesn't matter, you know, what your goal is or how big your business is. Everyone should start a podcast for the simple networking reason behind it. How do you feel like your podcast has helped elevate your network, social skills? I know you're big into the crypto space. Um, has the podcast, do you feel like, accelerated a lot of your businesses and you know industries that you've been with? When I started the podcast, I tweeted and I said that I have a feeling podcasting is going to be the most successful endeavor uh, in my life. And to this day, even being in crypto over six years, to me still feels like it's added the most value. Uh, the podcast has pivoted a little bit along the way. When I first started, it was the guest list. So it was just focusing on Vegas entrepreneurs. I felt like that was a market that was very untapped. Now looking at it two and a half years later, ever since COVID, the the, the city is just flooded with entrepreneurs. It's awesome to see. Um, since, since the first 170, it gave me the ability to pivot into specifically crypto, which I'd been watching and investing in for a long time. And taking those social skills over there uh, gave me a huge advantage um, which most people in that space don't really possess because they're mostly either investors or they're, or they're devs, so, and they prefer to not be in front of the screen. Uh, so it's really amplified and accelerated my progress to a degree to help me grow my Twitter account to, to almost 10,000 followers now at this time. That's awesome, man. Yeah, when I think of crypto and crypto experts, I think of you and in terms of like your consistency and just how committed you are to the space before crypto was really a thing. I feel like there's a lot of crypto experts nowadays, but to go track, you know, your content and the things that you were talking about and researching back in the day, you know, it's been super cool to, to see your crypto growth. It's been, dude, it's been a lot of fun. Uh, I specifically did just cryptocurrency investing 
for the first three years, four years, and then got into NFTs in March of 2021 um, through this thing called like a Mooncats Rediscovery. And now that's where I put a lot of my focus. Did do a lot of work in the city doing blockchain meetups. I had native research, which was my most recent business, which was consultation. I worked with like the the city of Las Vegas, the gaming control board, uh, multiple casinos out here to try to get that conversation going in Las Vegas that you know, this doesn't have to be a tourism dependent town. If you if you take this the leverage of the the future financial system of of the internet and potentially uh, the globe, then we should get this conversation got uh, going. And that all started through the podcast. A lot of them found me with just talking uh, with Vegas entrepreneurs and them knowing that I had a background in crypto, but that wasn't at the front uh, and center of my career. And the crazy thing about podcasting, you realize, is that when, when you don't have a medium of expression. Yes, maybe you have Instagram and you have some followers. When you try to reach out to those who have huge uh, amounts of success, whether financially, socially, intellectually, or whatever, you try to reach out to them and, you, and get some questions, they don't answer you. But then, you know, you reach out to somebody with a million followers and is does, doing all these things on social media and say, hey, can I share your story on my podcast? More often than not, they say yes. And that was when I realized that having these kind of uh, long format conversations is really a cheat code to finding success. And I think that was the aha moment for me as well, understanding that, like you said, you know, you go ask a multi, multi-millionaire, hey, can I pick your brain? Chances are he's going to be like, sure, a couple thousand bucks for, you know, 10 minutes. But I think the podcast is such an interesting uh, dynamic because you really are creating a win-win in the situation. You know, as long as it's a credible podcast, good content, you know, decent guests, chances are you're going to be able to create value for that individual because now you're getting their brand, their message, their product out to your viewers um, and creating an audience that maybe they didn't have before. Why do you think more, more people don't get into podcasts, especially entrepreneurship, salespeople, business owners? Why do you think it's just now starting to get big? And why do you think more people aren't creating their own show? Uh, I think it just comes down to a confidence issue. If you go back to episode zero of my podcast, it is the most cringeworthy thing that you can watch for four minutes. Me just talking and speculating on where I think the show could go, uh, what the plans are. Uh, a lot of grammatical errors, which I still do to this day. I'm still using words on podcasts that don't make sense, uh, punctuations off. And uh, you don't understand how to, to use pausing. You don't understand how to, to read social cues in the beginning. And it takes a long time to grow. I really didn't feel comfortable with my own conversational skills until probably episode 40 or 50. Mm. And then on top of that, you still have to learn the, the, the editing, right? You got to understand uh, the equipment for it. Who are you going to reach out to? What type of show? And for some people, it just becomes too overbearing to even go into it. And also one recommendation I say, and Travis talked about this too, when I was watching him was that you can start with literally a hundred bucks of just buying a, a USB mic for, for 80 bucks, plugging it into your computer. You'll need a computer. And then you could go from there. My first few episodes, even with you, uh, when I started during the pandemic, the equipment had been backordered because of the supply chain issue. I was literally recording with just headphones on a computer. So the audio wasn't complete. And a lot of people think that you need to invest ten, twenty thousand dollars $20,000 into an awesome setup to have a successful podcast. And what I've learned is that most people actually start 
at with the bare minimum and then gradually go over time because it gives the audience the ability to grow with you. You don't want to be too professional at times unless you have an existing audience because then there's that detachment. It's almost like comedians where when a comedian first starts on their foundation, they're very relatable. They, they go through the same suffering that the average uh, individual does. But then as they become more successful, there's that huge disconnect. So you want to kind of, I try to follow those steps along my own journey so that those who've been following me feel, feel similar to it. I love that, man. You know, you don't have to be uh, great to start, but you have to start to be great. And uh, I think you're right. I think you're right for sure. I feel like, you know, over the years, I've done a pretty decent job of like polishing my communication skills. And, you know, this is what I do for a living. But even, you know, shifting from like in-person conversations and, and talking to potential, you know, prospects for solar, shifting to the digital content, whether it's creating reels, creating a podcast, it definitely is a different game in your communication skills. But I think that should be enticing for a lot of people, especially people that want to develop and craft and uh, you know, get better at speaking and at communicating and at delivering a message. You know, if you don't want to be speaking in front of hundreds of people, a podcast or creating content is a really good way to start and get that confidence, get that skill set, you know, going to eventually be able to, you know, get masterful at it. So as you start communicating in person, it gets a, a whole lot easier. Um, you know, you're at you know, how many episodes did you say? 200. Just recorded 237 this morning. That consistency is crazy, man. What tips do you have for people that maybe are, you know, either not even in the game of podcasts yet or creating content or have just like myself, episode three, four, five and six, you know, what tips, what things that you wish you learned, you know, early on in your game that you think the viewers, uh, you know, can help? At first, first, I think you, everyone needs to have that aha mo moment intuitively. I started my podcast uh, because of the pandemic. I'd been thinking about it for a long time, but there was this like do or die moment when the strip was shut down. I was working at the nightclub. The nightclub was closed. I knew this was going to uh, be a long time before I went back to work. And I had this like overcoming feeling where if I was going to ever do it, I would do it now. And that gave me kind of the energy and the drive to continue on to to purchase the equipment and then kind of just say like, hey, I'm just going to figure this out on the, go on, on the go. I did a lot of research beforehand. I I watched uh, some of some of the models, people that I model after, because I love long form conversations. Was like Joe Rogan and Tim Ferriss, and I was doing a lot of research on them. And I, I came to realize that in Joe and Tim's beginning podcast, they had a lot of grammatical errors. They used a lot of filler words, and then I started watching as they progress, and they still do it to this day. So it kind of gave me the confidence to say, "Hey, let's go on. Let's just let's learn and let's do it." Uh, also, to reach out to as many people as possible. You'd be surprised the amount of uh, successful uh, phone numbers that you or phone numbers of people that you have in your phone book that you tend to forget about. So I went mm -hmm. through my phone book and I was looking for people um, that I thought thought was successful or who had a podcast to just ask them for their advice. Um, then also to depending on uh, the show that you're going into to. Uh, interview people that you feel very comfortable with in the beginning. That's why I had you on for episode three. Uh, first, the out of the first, I think, 20 episodes that I recorded, I knew about 15 of them prior. So it helped me feel comfortable and confident enough in, in my own skin and with my within my own linguistics to try to grow with them and also give them some voices. So there, there's a lot of different manners and varieties. And also just use the tools that are out there. I'm not an artistic person at all, at least uh, aesthetically. So I used 99designs to, to create the logo. 
Um, I went through you. I learned everything on YouTube. The first 150 episodes, I did all of the recording, all the editing, all the booking. It was literally me as a one man show. And I put the, the, the work in, put in, you know, eight hours a day during the pandemic. So there's really nothing else to do, do a lot of research and just continually growing it until it becomes automated. Mm. There's a lot there, man. So, Mm -hmm. so two things I got away from that is, you know, you were committed to actually putting in the hours in order to get masterful at this. You know, I feel like there's two types of people, um, to start a podcast, right? There's the people that this is your full-time thing. You have the time, you have the desire and creativity to learn the the business, the game from the ground up. And then you have people like me who I don't care about any of that stuff, right? I'm focused on my own business. And then I outsource uh, the resources that I need in, in order to do that. Um, but I think the big takeaway there is like, regardless of what you're trying to do, whether it's podcast, whether it's a business, you have to realize that you're going to suck a lot at first. And you know, you're going to feel very uncomfortable and the unknown is scary. That's why most people I believe don't succeed in whatever they do in life. It's not because they're not capable, not because, you know, they're not good enough. It's simply because they're not willing to put themselves in a vulnerable situation to find out what they're made of. And chances are, if they did that, you know, even if they fail, fail, you know, learn, it's going to get them that much closer to succeeding at whatever they're doing. Jake, I, I've known you for a long time. We met in the fraternity. Oh, where- man, how fun was that? How fun was that? You know, the, the crazy part of that was when we worked at, at Planet Hollywood together, um, Steven, he had a different nickname and he used to get made fun of a lot because he was going, he was going through multi-level marketing. He left the fraternity, dropped out of college, very, uh, just, just not a normal thing to do back in the day. And, you know, joined the MLM, had to go through the, the pyramid scheme claims and everything and just, just kept pushing through. And, uh, I was a critic of him in the beginning and then turns out that, that he was right. And so then I actually had to walk down, walk back down my own mountain and reverse and start reassessing what I wanted to do, graduated, and then saw his success with, with speaking. And so you basically proved everybody wrong in the fraternity to this day. Yeah, man. Which, you know, back in the day, right? Like when I was early in my career, I was like, yeah, you know, I proved all these people wrong. And then as you mature and you get better at business, I realized I wasn't trying to prove other people wrong. I was just trying to prove myself right. And, uh, you know, I feel like in life, you know, there's decisions that we have to be made that are, that are critical in our life. And, you know, if you don't have the faith, if you don't have, um, the confidence in order to take the path less traveled, then you're just going to continue to get the same exact results and you're going to end up like everyone else, which, you know, if you look at society, it's not a great place to be. And Jake, I know that, you know, you've had your own business challenges, your business, you know, ventures that you've gone through that, you know, maybe in the moment look like failures, but that has led you into the person, into the business owner, into the crypto and podcast expert that you are today. Can you share some of those lessons or some of those experiences that you've learned from those business ventures previously before you really hit your stride? Yeah, absolutely. So when, when I did my own research, I think the average stat might be different now is an, an entrepreneur goes through an average of six businesses before they basically strike gold. Of course, there's an exception. Some people strike gold the first time. So my first business out of college, I graduated UNLV with a degree in kinesiology, graduated with a 2.2. So knew that was not going anywhere professionally, Solid. but it'd be, it be practically right. Uh, but during, but during the fraternity, it helped me grow my social skills. First business out of left field opened up an antique and collectible store because grew up on the east side of Vegas, very uh, lower class area. And to survive, my, my father used to 
go to uh, storage units, go to yard sales and antique picking. So when I started working at, at Omnia nightclub and making a bunch of money, I decided, hey, what, what's a better thing to do than to open up a store with your father and kind of learn? Unfortunately, right, opening up a brick and mortar business back in 2018, that's kind of towards the end of the, the beginning of the decline. But I learned there, which today, and we'll, we'll get back to like, we'll go into what I do within crypto. There's a lot of relations actually there. It helped me understand what value actually is. And what I mean by that is when people come in and, and they're looking for uh, a vintage radio or they're looking for their favorite Denver Broncos collectible or they're looking for mid-century furniture, every single person values that differently. So it really helped me understand uh, what they're going to value, but but also why? Why why does somebody why would somebody be willing to pay four hundred dollars for this Woodstock ticket? Meanwhile, ninety nine point nine percent of the world will pay zero for it. So there was something there that uh, I started understanding about just non fungible value. Uh, of course, non fungible tokens, right? So there's a there's a lot that makes sense there, and and also just negotiating. Uh, at the end of the day, the world comes down to negotiation, right? This is kind of like even coming on this podcast is a negotiation, right? You, we get to share credibility with each other. That's part of the negotiation. Then you get to share it there. So through that, um, understanding value was uh, most important to me. And then second business was called Chameleon Verified Network. It was a ticket verification platform peer-to-peer -peer, uh, for the most part. That helped me understand uh, the Web2 side of things, how to create an app, the importance of an app. Outsourcing taught me a lot, right? Uh, understanding that at some point you're going to have to outsource something. So we outsource all the dev work, which... To me, I was never somebody to outsource anything. Uh, when you're a beginning entrepreneur, you kind of just want to take on as much as possible because you you, you don't think that ever you don't think that anybody you delegate a task to can do it as as good as you can. So both of those businesses lasted about three years each. Antique store is two years. Uh, Chameleon was three years, and then the third business was Native Research, which I started in 2020, a little after end of 2020, and it was basically just like a crypto consultation group in las vegas and i started doing that and that actually started through my podcast and through networking and people uh, that were running a bunch of the tech scene in las vegas reached out to me and wanted me to start working with the university and then i found out in order to negotiate or even have conversations with a lot of these public and private organizations you have to have an entity uh, to kind of add some credibility to it so um, that taught me Native research taught me that you you can get in contact with literally anybody as long as you as long as you show a lot of passion and confidence in yourself, regardless if you know something completely through. I don't think anyone knows blockchain through and through to this day um, or any industry, um, but it it just shows me that they're even though some of these people seem untouchable, right? Politicians or casino owners. They also need advice in certain areas and you can be that person as long as you can uh, display it effectively. Mm, I like that. Find the need, right? I think one of my um, challenges early on in my career is I'd always used to put successful people on a pedestal. You know, I used to put, oh, this dude's making a million dollars a year. This 24 year old kid's making 30, 40 K a year. I can never be like that because of the way he speaks, the way he communicates. Oh, this business owner, oh, this. And the issue is when you put successful people on a pedestal, you're almost creating a level of separation um, from that individual. And if you don't believe that you're capable of achieving that due to the fact because of X, Y, and Z, and they're so great, you're never going to be willing to put in the work and the effort because why would you work for something that you don't believe you're capable of achieving? So I think finding 
the need for these individuals and exploiting that need in order to get you in the right room, which you've done a lot in order to get to where you want. Now, I mean, you just went over three businesses, four businesses. Where does that desire come from? Where does that ambition, where does that drive come from? Because, you know, you and I both in college, right? If you look <laughs> at us, you definitely wouldn't oh. see ambition. You wouldn't see young entrepreneur. So where did that come from? Is that is that something from, you know, your upbringing? Is that something that you've, you've learned? Where does that desire come from in order to go out there and be willing to fail in order to chase your dreams? I think the most important trait anyone can possess is curiosity. Uh, I, mm. I think I've maintained this vision or, or these values pretty much my entire life. I've always been a curious person. I grew up an only child, so it probably puts less friction in between what, what I actually desire and the uh, the ability to go through with it. When you have a larger family, there's so much more social hierarchy that you have to, that you kind of have to work through to, mm. to attain what you want. So I think the, uh, the ability of being very curious and then um, just kind of really not giving not not giving a fuck what other people think. You got yeah, dude. Just a completely completely through. Um, I I haven't been afraid to change mediums or of of any sort of expression, whether it's a professional pursuit, um, some sort of like intellectual pursuit, education. I think that I also value progress a lot. Uh, uh, this could also be a huge detriment to me, which people have also um, acknowledged too, that I don't think I, I, I can only deem a day successful if I find some sort of progress for right. it, whether it's going to work out, reading some part of a book, uh, making a new friend. And I've always taken that kind of idea and applied it to whatever I'm doing. When I was in the fraternity, my goal was to meet somebody new every day. So I'd always go sit at the high tables in the student union and try to try to meet other fraternity guys, meet girls, same thing at party, always continuously networking and applying different social experiments in, the, in those conversations, I think really uh, helped me uh, gain a lot of confidence and uh, apply that to whatever it is that I'm going to do. But also be very authentic. Don't pretend to... Uh, I've also been very authentic again, can also be a detriment, right? A lot of people value authenticity, but then when it's put in front of them, um, they tend to negate it a little bit because it might clash with like their own personal identity. Mm. Yeah, man. Progress. I, I would agree with you. I think progression is the key to happiness. I think we are born in our DNA from an intrinsic level that if we're not progressing, if we're not growing, if we're not doing something like you said every single day to either move us closer to where we want to be or actually regressing and getting further away um, from where we want to be. And I know for me personally, you know, I, I remember when I first got into entrepreneurship, I was like, I just want to make X amount of money a year, you know, passively. And then I'd be, you know, in Hawaii smoking weed on the <laughs> beach, not doing anything, right? And just hanging out, playing video games. And then I quickly realized, especially meeting people, you know, I have mentors um, and business partners and, and people who have enough money um, that they could play golf every single day and do whatever they did. And they actually did that for a while. And then talking to them, they've actually, during that time period, they're actually the most unhappy because they didn't have something they were striving for. They're, they weren't stretching. They, they didn't have that next thing that they were desiring for. So I think that's really important. Let's, uh, let's back up a little bit. So you used to work in the industry. Um, I, I remember, Ooh, yes. you know, and, and at the time, right, you were what, 23, 24 years old. Yep. Started working at Omnia 23 up until the pandemic for five years. So from 23 to 28. Yeah. And, you know, in Las Vegas, you know, which we're both, you know, natives here for, you know, the industry is, is a great 
job for a lot of people. You know, my girlfriend, uh, Nicole, you know, she's, she's a waitress, um, you know, at a day club and you can really make some serious income. You know, a lot of these people are making, you know, six figures high, uh, you know, two, two to 50, hundred thousand dollars. What was it? Do you think that gave you the self-awareness to realize like, Hey, this isn't my end all be all. I'm going to use this as a vehicle in order to, um, catapult yourself Mm -hmm. into that next venture, which, you know, turned into podcasts and crypto. Oh man. So this is actually like a a pretty long story and and part of uh, what shaped me as a person Uh, in college I was a big party kid was known as the party guy pretty much my entire life. So making the next step to, you know, the biggest party in the world, right. It, It makes a lot of sense and you can make, you can make a lot of money. I actually now go every semester I just went to, and you can see it on my YouTube channel, I go speak in a 400-level class about uh, power dynamics and organizations because the professor is very interested in how power works on the strip, right? Especially in nightclubs where women have a lot of power, but actually who has the most power is VIP hosts. So there's, there's like big uh, hierarchy that happens. But when I started working at the nightclub, it was something I always wanted in college, right? This is something everyone says. It's all busing and bartending in a nightclub is the equivalent of what a valet worker was back in like the 50s, 60s, and 70s, and 80s and, and on the strip. So started working there, felt the dream, and instantly within a year and a half, I realized how detrimental this was to my health, mm. my mental health, my physical health. Yes, you're making a, a lot of money, and so something in the industry, which a lot, a lot of people call it, is called the golden handcuffs, which means that you're handcuffed to this job because you're making so much money. You're making more than a doctor is making at times for the easiest amount of work. A monkey could do it. A monkey could sell bottles, right? A hot monkey, right? For, could sell the bottles. Definitely a a, bit, a big, a big, A big monkey with, with muscles can carry the juice and the ice around, right? It's, it's not a hard job to do at all. And, uh, but I realized I was, I was developing insomnia. I was going out and engaging in substance abuse, alcohol abuse, spending a lot of money, turning it around, right? You make a lot of money, then the next day you're off and you go turn around and spend it again, developing bad uh, uh, financial habits. And it, it, it led me to a point to where I actually went sober for three years. Mm. And uh, there was a lot of reasons behind that. Um, so I'm, again, making very terrible sit decisions uh, was the main um, determinant for it. But I, I woke up and realized that during this time that I was, I had started two different jobs with, or two different businesses within the first three years of being at Omnia. And I realized that if I was ever going to get myself out of this vicious circle, which I noticed a lot of my coworkers were doing and myself, you're going in, you're meeting these cool people, you have the opportunity to talk with billionaires, there's no they don't have any of their executives in front of them. There's no handlers, right? You could go talk to Bill Gates if he's at your table because you have direct line of communication. So you're opening this up. But I realized quickly that everybody in the industry, not many people were actually utilizing what was really here, the opportunity to build a large amount of capital and, and build companies. So during those three years of three, little over three years of sobriety, I uh, took a vow to myself that I was going to do whatever it takes to build success um, and and apply it in whatever direction that it is. And ultimately, it came down to when the pandemic uh, when the pandemic happened, the the nightclubs closed. I started the podcast, and after a year of uh, working on the podcast, they offered us uh, an opportunity to come back and work for the nightclub. 
I was one of two busters of 70 who decided not to come back because everyone thought it was crazy. Why would you leave one of the best jobs in the entire city um, to go work on your own pursuit? And to me, immediately, it, it sucked for about an hour. I felt guilty. I felt like this social obligation to and duty to all my coworkers. But I've never been happier ever since then. Just the 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 relation of of having um, a healthy life and the opportunity to to live what the life that you want versus just banking a lot of capital and then being in this perpetual depressed state that most people are in that no one really talks about. It's now, now it seems like a no brainer. Yeah, man. I think that's very wise. Cause I feel like in any job, you know, especially nightlife in the industry in Vegas, but any job, you know, people get content, they get comfortable, they get, um, you know, lured in by whatever the benefits are or, you know, they get a paid week of vacation or they have health insurance or benefits and they almost sacrifice their, like you said, their own joy, their happiness, their fulfillment, because they may not love what they're doing and they may believe there's more out there. But for them to take that jump into something scary, into something that is unknown, isn't worth the risk in their mind. So they come, they, they stay, they get complacent. And then you look up in 10, 20, 30 years with a bunch of regret because you didn't actually pursue something that you were passionate about, you just sold out because of, you know, the job, the income, whatever. And these are, these industry jobs have a shelf life too. And everyone is very aware of it, but no one likes to talk about it. And then you start uh, sacrificing health towards the later of your shelf life career. So let's say your physical peak state, probably end of your 30s, beginning of your 40s, depending on whether you're male or female. And so in order to stay in that, then you have to start engaging in different types of surgeries, uh, different types of, of uh, weight rep or, uh, reduction, right? There's all these different surgeries you could do, which takes years off your life, just so you can remain working there for another few years to kind of siphon off what you want. And then when you're finally booted out or kicked out, whether you, you age out, the club closes, union or whatever the, the different variables happen, now you find yourself in your early 40s to mid 40s um, with no sort of real world experience. And you're kind of forced to then uh, pursue a, a life of entrepreneurship, which at that point, you can be an entrepreneur at any age, but being at, starting your entrepreneurial career in your mid 40s is much, much tougher than it is in your 20s and 30s. Skills pay the bills. You need to develop those skills, especially at a young age, um, because it doesn't matter. You know, once you become valuable enough, once you get your your attitude, your belief, your skills, your communication, all these um, non-tangible assets that we all have and that we can develop it doesn't matter what industry what company you know what's going on in the economy who's the president you can go out there and dominate because of the work that you put in on yourself so i love that jake i know you know everyone goes through challenges in life you know you kind of talked about it a little bit where you almost kind of had this this realization this this rock bottom um you know experience right before you started the podcast got into crypto do you think people have to go through some type of tragedy or some type of rock bottom um experience in order to get the realization to make a shift and realize man the path i'm walking on maybe isn't the path maybe i should pivot or do you think that's something that can be created through their own desire wisdom etc i think yeah it, it can definitely be created uh, turmoil isn't required, but to me, it's definitely a superpower. I say this pretty often that I'm glad I was born very poor because it gave me the ability to grow multiple skills over time. Where if you're if you 
are born into a healthy state, which just means uh, you have multiple safety nets, your parents pay for multi- multi- most of your life, um, whether it's your, your housing or they can give you allowances or whatever, you're only required to grow the skills needed at that state. Whereas if you start on the lower rung, yes, you have to go through uh, more turmoil, there's more obstacles to go through, but then you get to have a more general approach to life and grow multiple skills, which, which can be applied over time. When the issue you see with a lot of uh, trust fund babies or, or people who are born into wealthy families is they kind of lose... Um, they lose that fire uh, to to build anything substantial because they've always had everything that they needed. Uh, in crypto, it's interesting because a lot of those people who navigate the crypto world and find success actually came from a very poor background. You, they realized and they can identify the opportunity of what was sitting before them. And this is very similar with even the early uh, content creators and YouTubers and podcasters who also grew from a from a very poor background because they, they were able to identify that this was going to be something very massive and they were able to put their own personal brand and energy out there, which some people can create self-sufficiently, but because they had a lot of that friction in their early years, they were, they were able to continue to push past it because we know as an entrepreneur or a content creator, which is kind of the same thing now at this point in time, you put yourself out there, you're going to receive a lot of criticism. And if you've, if you've fought your entire life to get there, then some, 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 some veil words that are thrown at you or, you know, not having enough capital at the time, that's just something that you can view as something that's overcomable where most other people who haven't gone through that won't be able to. For sure, man. You know, I, I grew up pretty poor too. My parents didn't have much money growing up. And I used to think that was a crutch. You know, I used to think, oh, man, you know, and I, I think this is how most people think. They, they get into victimhood. Oh, the reason I'm not successful or the reason, you know, I can't do this or I can't do that is because, you know, my parents didn't give me anything. And that person was born rich. And, you know, they're, they're pointing the finger at the reason that they're not where they want to be. When in reality, you really have to take ownership over your life and realize in hindsight I'm super grateful to your point, the way that I was raised and the way that I grew up, because if not, I may have not had that hunger. I may have not had that desire in order to go out there and go create success, go create wealth, go out there and create, you know, something big for my life because I wouldn't have experienced the pain. You know, for me, my why for a really long time was to take care of my parents, buy them a house, you know, all these certain things. And I feel like if I didn't have that and I grew up maybe middle class, I may have not had that same desire because there wouldn't have been enough pain there to push me into getting uncomfortable and actually doing something. And I feel like for most people out there, I'm not saying you can't go crush it, you know, if you come from wealth or you come from, uh, you know, opulence, but you know, for people that come from a, a poor background, don't allow that to be a crutch. Don't allow that to be an excuse of why you don't go out there and go take big action for your life. Use that as the reason to go do that because chances are there's a lot of pain there about money that you can channel that pain into doing something big for your life, which, you know, I think me and you both have done. 
Yeah, it's it's absolutely true. I remember when so when we were in the fraternity, uh, we were in we were in A Pi, right? We we're a bunch of a bunch of Habibis, bunch of Jew boys. Straight Habibis. Uh, our, our fraternity was very middle of the road. I remember once I think it was called like the Scarlet Roar, which was like the the fraternity rumor paper came out, and they rated all the fraternities, and ours was exactly in the middle. And it said the only thing distinguishable about this fraternity was that half of the brothers deserved to be in the upper tier, and half deserved to be in the lower tier, right? And and it was pretty true at the time one of the issues was that all of the successful brothers would show up to all of the events and talk to all the girls and, and network with all of the uh, other people and organizations and, and for me I always went out there even when we were having attendance issues was that I'm going to do this for myself right whether the whole the whole fraternity of 55 people showed up or whether five people showed up I'm going to be still out here as Jake Gallen networking and those and everyone who's out here is going to remember me as either somebody who has a big brotherhood to support them or Jake's out here because he wants that he's hungry and he wants to be successful and uh, maybe wants to get laid too. But <laughs> that's uh, it's just part of the journey. And I've always taken that application in life is that whether there's people behind me supporting me or joining me on this journey, I'm going to go out there and do it for myself because I want to know what happens on the other side of that interaction and uh, the other side of that engagement, the other side of that action. That's, I think, something that, that just fires me because you don't really know. Uh, when I was younger, when I was in high school, middle school, I used to look up a lot of these like uh, deathbed lists that these individuals would write, which I still do to this time and it talks about like, these are the 99 things that I wish I knew uh, before I was about to pass away. And, and every single one, they always said that uh, when they're on their deathbed, they always think about the what ifs more than the things that they applied in their life. And to me, it's, you know, it's a little terrifying. It's, it's a little esoteric. But if they're all saying that, then there's probably some sort of truth to it. And, uh, you know, that's probably something that sits in my subconscious now. Yeah, man, that's uh, that's powerful. You know, mortality I feel like it's something people don't really think about a lot um, for obvious reasons, right? It's scary. It's unknown. Um, it's not a fun topic to talk about. But if you can channel it properly, it can actually help elevate your lifestyle while we're still here. Because if you think you're going to live forever, you may take actions that are congruent with that belief, which may not serve you because if you're not taking risks, if you're not doing things because you believe you're going to live forever, chances are you're not going to experience life at the highest level where if you understand, hey, you know, whether it's a week from now, a month from now, or hopefully, you know, 50 years from now, I'm going to die in that frame that talking to that girl or taking that business opportunity or starting something you're passionate about is very minuscule because it almost shrinks the fear behind it because there's this crazy thing at the end that we all deal with. Uh, you brought up the you brought up the fraternity. I know the fraternity had a really big impact on my life. I was only in it for you know a year and a half before I dropped out of college. But what do you think your biggest takeaway was from the fraternity? Ooh man, uh, the the fraternity is definitely one of the pillars to my life. I think I went on a different podcast and was talking about the different pillars that it that existed and kind of um, are the rock solid foundation. Uh, so like the fraternity, the fraternity was definitely the social pillar that helped me. I was already social, but that really solidified the person that, that I thought that I was. Uh, when I started raving, that was kind of like the spiritual pillar to me that really helped me like, you know, go out and dance and just have fun and not worry about what other people are thinking. And Omnia was really the financial pillar. That was the first time that I got to taste real, real cash and then have the ability to, you know, splurge it and spend it at, at, at 
during the worst times possible, but also apply it and use it as capital to build different businesses. So when I was in the when I was in the fraternity, the biggest takeaway again it was kind of like entrepreneurship. You're you're really just kind of selling yourself to the individuals of the fraternity, uh, to the women of the sororities, to the other the men of the other organizations, and to the staff of who you want to be, but then also who they think you're going to be, right? About mm-hmm. about your journey. And those five years that I was in the fraternity, it took five and a half years to graduate, very typical. <laughs> Las Vegas, UNLV graduate at the time. I also worked 40 hours a week, every week throughout my entire college career at the Planet Hollywood pool. Uh, so, so that also uh, only allows you to take so many classes at a time. But it was really like a taste of what the real world was. I remember uh, Gershon, who was one of our uh, fraternity brothers and presidents, we did a, a bro retreat, which a bro retreat was something where the entire fraternity, we'd go get a cabin down in Utah and we'd all hang out and, you know, you go through your rituals and you hang out and stuff. And there was a speech that always stuck with me that he said was that he was like trying to get, trying to just say to the fraternity um, as he was president, it was like, Guys, this isn't real life, right? This is a practice of of what the real world is. These are all make believe positions, right? But the but he said these all mimic things in real life, right? If you're the social chair and you're throwing parties, you're similar to like an events coordinator. If you're the treasurer, right, or the exchequer in our fraternity, then then you're similar to like a CFO of of an organization. Mm. And that was something that or or the big one for me too, the big position is I was the rush chair for for a year. And so that's recruiting, right? That's kind of like what you do. And that was like a, a another big epiphany and aha moment to me was that I'm going to take on the different positions that I think are going to apply and translate to the real world so that I can practice this now and find success later. Mm. I love that, man. It's so interesting to me that when you put meaning on certain things, regardless of, of what you're doing, that's the meaning that you'll take from it. You know, in, in your point, you are practicing how to be successful in the real world during the fraternity experience. Therefore, your RAS, which um, is a reticular activating system, basically the part of your brain that, you know, whatever you tell it, it's your command system. It's almost like a computer. You input a command and essentially it'll output something in the real world. But you're basically programming your mind to be like, hey, I'm a great recruiter. You know, I'm great leader. I'm great at handling money. Because of the meaning that you put behind it, you're actually getting um, that type of experience where there's another person going through those same experiences, those same things as you that is just looking at it as, oh, this is college. I'm supposed to have a good time. I'm, I'm you know, just doing the thing. And they're not receiving that same value so i think just the meaning you put behind things regardless of what it is right we could both watch a tv show right now and if my meaning if my intention is to get some type of wisdom some experience from that i'm gonna glean something where maybe the person next to me may not get anything other than watching you know a tv show from one of my, one of my favorite modern philosophers is scott adams he's the guy who wrote dilbert uh now he talks more about politics but when uh, once I started graduating, I started reading a lot of books, and he he talks a lot about this idea of skill stacking, where it's you go through life and you go through these different endeavors, whether it's like a business endeavor or, or a social opportunity, but you learn these skills from it, even though it may be a failure, as we mentioned about all the different past business things that, that we've done. And if you take all of these skills, if you can identify them first, what they are, and then you can apply them and stack them on each other. Then you're going to take, you're going to create some sort of skill set that's so refined that nobody 
uh, is able to duplicate who you are. Mm -hmm. And then you take that and then you can apply it to creating a business or a specific position in another business. And a lot of other modern day philosophers and success stories talk about the same property, right? It's kind of like the 80-20 the principle or Naval Ravikant talks about his idea of a specialized knowledge where he says, if you could be in the top 20 percentile of three to five different skill sets, then again, that makes you a very valuable person because no one's going to be able to duplicate who you are, which then if you are a one of one, if you are an NFT, right? If you are a crypto punk, then you're going to be very valuable. Amen, man. Let's pivot a little bit from the real world into the metaverse, which <laughs> I know is uh, your your specialty. Um, it was funny. I remember probably last year, um, I think after I came on your show, um, you know, we were talking before the show and, you know, you have an obscene amount of Bitcoin. Uh, I, think, <laughs> I think you have more Bitcoin um, than anyone I know for sure. And it was funny because uh, you were basically, you know, discussing, yeah, my Bitcoin portfolio. And this is when Bitcoin was booming, you know, <laughs> like, like last year sometime. And uh, you told me something very interesting that stuck to me. You said, yeah, man, you know, I have all my money in Bitcoin and, you know, I won't even buy myself new socks, new shirts. I've been, you know, using the same socks for the last couple of years. And I thought that was really interesting, especially in the flex culture and, you know, everything we have going on right now in the 21st century with you know, materialism and, you know, just crypto um, in general of, of how loose people are with it. Um, where'd you get that philosophy from? Oh, man, it's it's a, a lot of Bitcoiners. And now now it's the kind of the same property applies to, to Ethereum and to NFTs and some of this. It's this like scarcity mindset that you need you need to acquire as much as possible within a certain time frame because you have such conviction that you know this is going to go up, that this is the destined opportunity. And I was thinking about it back then in 2017 or 18 when it was the bear market and you start buying again at the lows. You're like, okay, I can spend $10 on these socks or I can invest $10 now and then three, three, two, three years later, it's going to be worth $80 or $100 or whatever that multiple is. And then when you start thinking about that, you again, you get one of these like very like overbearing moments. You get the the hair to stick up on your skin and be like, what am I doing, right? That, as we all know, delayed gratification is like the best compounding results possible. Mm. Benjamin Graham talks about it in The Intelligent Investor. Warren Buffett talks about it. Same thing with, with the branding, right? Uh, when... I had, a, I had an individual on my podcast who told me the difference between uh, like sales marketing or, or yeah, marketing for, for a business, so business marketing versus personal branding, right? Sales, it's very direct. You know exactly what you want. You're going to spend the money now and then you can give like a quantitative output of what you want to get. Branding takes years, right? It takes years to kind of build that, that social equity. And then over time, there's going to be some sort of compounding return to it. You don't know when it's going to be, but you know that it's there, right? All the people you're engaging in this podcast, it's very similar to how I view crypto and Bitcoin is that, you know, there is a lull and this is when you get to build, right? So in the bear markets, builders build, right? It's the same thing with when you're a content creator. You generally want to, you want to start building your own niche um, when there's usually there's other, there's some other niche that's like blowing up right so right now in the youtube world the big niche i guess is like investigative journalism is like a big one right calling out scammers i'm sure right now there's some people who are building some sort of content which is a niche right it's their bear market but they have such conviction in that in that little market that eventually 
when investigative journalism falls off or has its slow moment, then they're going to come up and succeed. And that, that you could take that and apply it to many different things. And so with, with Bitcoin and crypto, um, I, move, I still have a bunch of Bitcoin. I definitely turned some of that into NFTs um, and have moved that and moved that value and transferred it to historical NFTs, um, which is essentially like digital antiquities. It sounds crazy. It sounds like something that shouldn't exist, but that's now where my conviction builds. And that's where I've built a lot of my, my brand and helped me grow from 2000 followers when I was at the guest list podcast to, to almost 10,000 Twitter followers, um, as of recording of this, just talking about the niche that I know and love. And I know that this is a long-term value. People shit on it and people don't really believe in it, but there is a community that believes in me and believes in the things that we're doing. And so I had to make a decision again, just like the podcast, just like the business, this value that exists, do I want to take it and let Bitcoin ride, right? I can let it just ride. I know it's going to succeed or, or I can take, move some of that value and, and invest it in myself, which means investing in some of these assets that exist in this classification, which then gives me more social capital and then kind of becomes this like compounding return. When is it going to be? Who really knows? But that's uh, that's kind of like where it exists today. When, uh, what dollar amount did you buy most of your Bitcoin at? Uh, it's range. So the first time I ever bought Bitcoin was actually the first time it passed gold. So that was, I think like April or March of 2017. And uh, I'd, I'd been buying Ethereum a little bit before that. So first time I bought Ethereum was about $100. Um, and, and again, so this is, this is the thing that had happened to a lot of crypto people go through this 27, got into it late 2016. I started following crypto first crypto purchase was beginning of 2017 and started trading, made a bunch of money, made a bunch of money, took everything that I had, degen as hell, took everything I had at the top of the market. I think around like March or April of 2018, took it all, invested in ICO, lost everything. Every single thing that I had earned over the past year and a half, I had lost. So I had to start all over again. And uh, as crypto began bottoming out, I started buying Bitcoin again, um, around 3500 to up about $6,000. And that was kind of my range. And I said, anything here in this range, I'm investing as much as possible. I'm not going out. I'm not going out. I'm quitting drinking alcohol. I'm not spending anything while it's in this range. And anytime it's here, this is like the life return. And that was just like the conviction that I held. And so then after that, then you let it ride. And of course I was also buying Dogecoin at the same time too. Cause to me and buying Dogecoin in 2018 and 2019, it was a meme coin. And I, this is when I started understanding, understanding the power of memes and understanding that meme marketing is actually what runs crypto there. You don't, People who go buy uh, like digital marketing uh, campaigns for crypto are complete idiots, right? All you need to do is just have a guy who creates dank memes and post it, and that does all the marketing for you. So to me, I was like, if the internet ever figures out what this is, then it's going to absolutely explode, and it did absolutely explode. And of course, I sold too early, still made enough money to quit uh, Omnia for good and pursue things that I really wanted to do. But that's the thing is that I've learned, especially in crypto, uh, it might be a little bit different in stocks, you make very convicted bets and sometimes they will turn out right and do really well. Sometimes you'll get rugged like I did as well, but it's always coming down to the, the idea of doubling down on yourself. And that's something I've done my entire life. Love that, man. If you had to explain crypto slash NFT investing and what people should be doing as a best practice to a kindergartner, what would you tell them? <sighs> oh boy. Yeah. There's, there's so many ways to go about it. Um, 
if I if I had to do an ELI five, which is like explain like I'm five, it's a Reddit term. I would say that it's it's money for Roblox. It's the most popular metaverse at this point in time. So and a lot of the younger generation understands this. You could say that NFTs are essentially the skins, right, or the weapons that are in Call of Duty that you use, the clothes that you wear, um, and at some point in time, 20 years from now, we're not even going to have to say digital skins. It's just going to be clothes because mo- uh, because over time, we spend more time on our phones, on our computers. I know everyone hates it every Sunday when Apple sends that that update of how much time you've spent on your phone. Mm-hmm. And you mm-hmm. see that, right? And it's just continually growing from four hours, five hours, six hours. Some people crypto, I've seen them post 12 hours a day on Twitter, right? So you're basically living your life what I've begun to realize is that you can have that many hours as long as you're being a producer way more than you're being a consumer. And so that's kind of like the progression that we're going. But to explain it, it's just literally the digital version of everything that exists in today's world or the the physical things that exist in today's world is just going to be the digital duplication of it. NFTs are just digital ownership. Uh, So whether a toddler can understand what ownership means Best two ways to say is digital ownership. Mm. If you're someone like me who is, you know, running a full-time business or in sales, entrepreneurship, network marketing, whatever, you know, they're they're grinding, they're doing their thing, they're trying to build their their wealth, their business, and they want to add crypto, NFTs, the whole digital assets um, into their portfolio, what is the best way to go about it? You know, my strategy in the past has kind of been, I'm not willing to do enough research. I'm not on all the Reddit forums. You know, not, I'm not on Twitter, on Discord. I'm just not investing enough time to know too much about that sector. So I've just been dollar cost averaging into Ethereum, Bitcoin, and then just finding an expert, someone you trust to give me NFT picks. Is that the best way to go about it? Or for those listening, what is the best way to get started to have that in their portfolio for that long-term growth? If you're if you're new to crypto, I highly suggest just dollar cost averaging that's what i did in the very beginning um i still do it to this day basically dollar cost averaging is like what the mention the example i used before bitcoin was between three thousand and six thousand i would buy weekly or monthly in that range it didn't matter where it was in the range just i put a date and i was going to buy in there that's dollar cost averaging so that over time let's say you make Four buys at four thousand or at three thousand, and four buys at six thousand. Then your average is forty five hundred, right? But the the easiest thing, the the best way to learn about crypto is putting skin in the game. There's no, there's not many other assets in the world where, in order to play the game, you actually have to to buy the the underlying assets. Everyone, not everyone who uses Facebook owns Facebook stock. Not everybody who who uses Google owns Alphabet stock, right? So not everyone who who uses Netflix owns Netflix stock. But in order to use Bitcoin, you have to own it, right? Mm-hmm. In order to use the the NFT sandbox of land in the game, you have to buy the land, right? To build on top of it. So it's a completely new paradigm where the investors are the owners and they're also the players in the game. This is what makes network effects so powerful in crypto is that these individuals who own these nfts those who own the board apes are financially incentivized to promote it to get other players in the game sounds a little bit like a ponzi right <laughs> and that's kind of where it gets uh 
the, that's where the, the debate goes on. But it's very similar to you can classify that just as uh, our financial system, right? Printing money, bailing them out. It's a Ponzi because they over leverage. And so then there's more print. There's more. They, they get the printer press going. So you can kind of apply that to everything. But then it comes down to intrinsic value, right? What's the intrinsic value of a board ape? Uh, right now, the, the big intrinsic value is flexing, social status, um, and network effects. Those The reason why Board Apes blew up was, uh, there's a handful of reasons, but one of the big ones is because you had people like Steph Curry and Von Miller and uh, Post Malone, all these famous athletes and individuals who were in it, and now you get direct access to them because you could share an, a financial asset with them. So it's more likely that they're going to respond to you or maybe you can get a business deal with them because you're sharing a lot of the same values to them. That's the intrinsic value. It, but when I got into NFTs, it made me realize that a lot of the same game that's being played here was the same exact game that was being played in the antique store and the collectible store. Why does somebody buy an old radio? Why does somebody like these salt and pepper shakers? Why is Why does someone buy a very expensive watch? Yeah, right? Why does somebody buy a very expensive watch? It's all clubs, right? We're all social flexing uh, apes at the end of the day but nfts are definitely a much tougher game it's way more volatile it's very early so a lot of the infrastructure that exists uh in, in the equities market commodities market and some of the crypto markets doesn't exist in the nfts so you get a lot of what's called arbitrage opportunities which are people who are just trying to find the difference in pricing across platforms or social arbitrage right you just make up that difference by just being smart that exists um, at, at multiples more in the NFT market. So I wouldn't, I would recommend if you're new to NFTs to find something that interests you. So NFTs can be metaverse land, it can be uh, historical antiquities, right? So NFTs actually started in 2011. And so from 2011 to 2019 ish, um, we call it the NFT Cambrian explosion in 2021 when they blew up. Uh, my industry, we've basically gone through and looked through the blockchain and we're trying to, f to find these old NFTs and ascribe value to it. Was there innovation? Who's the people behind it, right? Very similar to like how you value old paintings and things like that. So to me, that made sense. I owned and I owned uh, an antique store, right? I understand how that value works, ascribing value, more of a collector's mentality than the newer the NFT space now is mostly like a flippers mentality, very similar to like the shoe market and the sports card market. But you move to NFTs and then you have like in-game skins, in-game assets, you have photography, you have art, you have trading card games. So whatever interests you most, I would, adv I would advise to dive into that niche first before becoming overcome and, uh, and you can almost say overshadowed by the PFP market, which is like these bored apes and, it's hard for some people to look at NFTs and take them serious when you see a picture of a monkey worth $100,000. At phase value, it doesn't make sense. But once you start looking under the hood and understanding that, yeah, there's humans who run all of these accounts and there's reasons why these kind of things exist, uh, right? Scarcity, supply and demand, all these different metrics. But first, you're going to have to own Ethereum to participate in that market. So the first thing to do is, I guess I have to say not financial advice, but... A recommendation is if you're going to get into crypto, you're going to want to buy Bitcoin or Ethereum first. Those are the, the foundations of the whole entire ecosystem. If if Bitcoin is gold, then then Ethereum and Solana, some of the other smart contract platforms are very similar to like your iOS or your Windows, your operating systems. So if you understand how those work, then then you'll be able to play the rest of the game. Mm.
That's some complex stuff, my Yeah, guy. yeah. It's tough, dude. I guess every podcast, I, I am able to simplify it more, but there's only so much you could go to before you start understanding everything else that exists and then also, like, why it exists, right? Like, Bitcoin was created because of the 2008 financial crisis, because of uh, Satoshi was, uh, was fearful, whoever they are, were fearful that the Federal Reserve was going to print a lot of money and devalue the dollars. And then it turns out 12 years later, it's exactly what happened, right? So a lot of these uh, a lot of these like prophetics who exist in crypto or even before crypto, the cypherpunks that had theorized all of it, it's all actually happening. It's just human psychology. It depends on if most people now, which is cool, the younger generations engage in some sort of like financial trading. They understand market dynamics, which the our previous generations didn't weren't taught in schools, but now the internet can teach you. They have a more fundamental understanding of that because it also overlaps with like internet psychology and the internet economy, which Gen Z millennials and that I guess alpha generation are pretty much born into it. This was a very hot topic. What earlier this year, last year, when you know Facebook changed their name to Meta. How does this whole metaverse? come into effect when it comes to crypto and nfts i feel like people aren't talking about it as much anymore just because i think what's going on with the crypto and the nft market really everything um you know seems like it's you know we're on our way if we're not already in a recession but how does this metaverse i guess come together with nfts with crypto and what do you think people can do to prepare or you know, be educated on in order to give them the best chance of capitalizing mm -hmm. off of Web3 and all this other stuff going on. So metaverse is definitely buzzwordy. There, I, I think the first thing you should understand is the difference between a centralized metaverse and a decentralized metaverse. So there are tons of centralized metaverse that exist. A, a metaverse is just pretty much an internet economy that uses... Um, some that has like some sort of trading or exchange system within it. You could say Twitter is a metaverse, right? You're you're exchanging ideas, thoughts, right? It's kind of like the town square. Roblox and Fortnite are also huge metaverses. You have millions of people engaging um, in these universes that are trading uh, entertainment. They're trading actual capital in Roblox, right? It has their own currency now. So understanding that's a centralized entity and the metaverse actually, and Ethereum was, was created, I guess you say decentralized metaverse, was created by Vitalik Buterin, the guy who created Ethereum. The reason why he created Ethereum was because he was a big World of Warcraft fan. Love World of Warcraft. And <laughs> he, was he, was a tra he had been training his character for multiple years, and Blizzard repossessed his asset. They repossessed his character. I don't, I don't, know, I don't remember what the reasoning was. And he said this is when he realized that people who play, who engage in these metaverses needed to have the ability to own their assets. So if that character was an NFT, right, then Blizzard couldn't repossess the asset from him. He owns the password to that asset, to that warlock or what the magician or whatever it is. I'm sure Warcraft cans are going to kill me for that. Uh, if he owned the keys to that, which is just keys mean password in crypto, then they couldn't repossess it from him, right? So that fear is why he created Ethereum. So now we move into the biggest metaverse is Facebook. Mark Zuckerberg changed it to Meta. So what can happen here? Uh, it can it can go. It could be something that that's 
awesome, that's game-changing, and it can also be something very dystopic, very similar to Ready Player One. So he, Mark Zuckerberg, has full control of this metaverse. He wants to make it very similar to Ready Player One, right? This this uh, VR, very immersive experience where you have, he just introduced legs, right? So he wants to mimic this the, the real-world conversation in the virtual world somehow. He's talk, he on Joe Rogan talked about how there's a lot of issues, but this is something they're actively trying to, to fix. So if you're engaging in his metaverse, let's say that then they issue a currency, right? Imagine, you know how many people are blocked off of Facebook? What if he just blocks you out of this metaverse that the whole world's engaging in? Now you're pretty much erased from society, so mm. you're, you have to then play by their rules. Also, he said that their Facebook marketplace or their meta marketplace is going to have a 47% royalty fee. So any asset you trade, now you have to pay a 47% tax, right? That's the issue with central services. Imagine now you have on the the, the Facebook uh, virtual reality glasses, right? And now they're tracking your eye movement. Now Mark Zuckerberg has access to your eye movement and the tracking. So the first three things you look at in a room, in a, in a meta room, is going to be three different advertisements that he could sell to. So now you're giving even more data to him. Mm. And in crypto, that absolutely scares the shit out of everybody. It's, it sounds very dystopic, and we're ready to go to Ready Player One. So there's two ways to combat this. You can either... Add NFTs to Meta, which Mark talks has said that he wants to do, right? So let's say you have your Ether Lambo. It's a 20, 2018 NFT project that's Lambos, right? You could take your Ether Lambo into the Metaverse, drive it around, and since you own the password to it, he can't repossess it, right? It'd be much different than if Meta issued their own cars where he could take the vehicle away from you. Or you just build a completely decentralized Metaverse, which... At this point in time, there's a few. There's Decentraland and Sandbox. To be honest, no one's really using them. At this current state of blockchains, um, they're highly inefficient. They're very slow and very expensive. Centralized entities at tech companies have existed now for about 20, 25 years. They're able to scale magnitudes more than than what decentralized uh, metaverses can do. So they're at a huge disadvantage. So if you build these decentralized worlds, right, the governance comes down to the individuals. You could do a DAO, right? So you can have everybody who owns a piece of land can have a vote in. However, the the game has changed. But then it comes to like a, a community. It becomes a community project, which so far in crypto, we've learned that you still have to have some sort of delegative or representative um, voting procedure because when it comes one one person equals one vote, nothing ever gets done. It becomes very similar to like the bystander effect. So those are the two options or two and a half options that exist. And that's kind of the current state of the metaverse. Got it. I remember when all this meta NFT like craziness was going on, I was like, like, is there going to be pods? Like how, what outlet are we going to have? So, you know, when you're referring to all this stuff, right, you said ether Lambos, is this all just on people's PCs, computers? Are we talking about the new, you know, VR headsets that, that Facebook just came out with? Like, where is all this going to live, do you see, in the next five to ten years? So there's definitely a, a middle ground, which is augmented reality, where let's say you hold up your phone, right, and then you can uh, project some sort of like image, holograms. holograms through your phone, or even just it's only specific to your phone, but if I hold my phone up here, right, I could see you and then I can have your, my NFT right behind you. Mm. So that's kind of the intermediary. To have this fully VR immersive world, 
it sounds like we're it's probably closer towards the end of the decade for that to happen. There's a lot of uh, there's a lot of equipment advancements that need to happen. Also, VR headsets. I don't know if you ever put one on. They're they're clunky. They're heavy. Yeah, makes your definitely neck not hurt. there yet. Yeah. So so to have that, I know he's working with Ray Ban to make it simple. But that's ultimately where it's all leading to. Is definitely if you ever read Snow Crash, it's definitely moving towards that, um, which was created I think in the, like the eighties. Um, so VR world, but there's going to be a lot of intermediaries right now. It's mostly just 2d metaverses, uh, right? You could even think legend of Zelda or grand theft auto is actually probably the biggest metaverse right now. That's closest to where we're going. Grand theft auto is actually adding their own cryptocurrency to the game. So rockstar is very smart for, for GTA. What is it? Six or seven or whatever it is. And so I think the slow progressions of, of these web two companies, web two is just anything that comes before crypto Taking these, I think taking these Web two companies and adding crypto components to it, rather than a fully uh, immersive, decentralized metaverse that's crypto only, it's more likely that the Web two companies move into crypto and find success there than the other way around. But eventually, you're going to want to have a completely decentralized metaverse. There it is, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> Absorb all that. No oh, man, it's a lot. I'm I'm fascinated by you know crypto, the metaverse, and and everything going on. And you know, I think one thing I admire about you a lot, Jake, is your ability to dial in and learn and absorb information. Is that something that you've practiced? Because I mean, you know, to really be this immersed into crypto, Web three, um, you know, before you came on the show, we were talking about all the research you did for the podcast. Where does that ability to zone in and absorb information? Because I believe that one of the most important skill sets in the next 5, 10, 15 years is your ability to be able to consume, learn, and apply information and also being able to pivot, drop everything you're doing and continue that process. Is that something that you've learned? Is that a skill set that you've developed or is that just something that comes natural to you? There's, there's some, there's some natural components to it, but it's, it's definitely something that's grown over time, something that's progressed. Uh, I take the same approach to many things similar to, I, I know you used to meditate a little bit. I don't know if you, if you still do, yeah. uh, to, in order to get to like an hour of meditation, you have to start with five minutes, right? And then you do five minutes a bunch of times and usually start with like guided meditation and then you do 15 minutes of guided meditation. Then you're like, oh, hey, maybe I should remove the guided meditation, right? And then, then you go backwards and you're like, okay, now I can only do 10 minutes of unguided. And so you slowly progress forward. And I try to take that idea and apply it to pretty much everything that I do. When I first got into crypto, I started reading books, even reading the Bitcoin white paper, which I recommend most people to do is the best thing to start. It's a complete foundation of everything crypto. It's nine pages. There's technical terms to it. But if you keep reading these technical terms over and over that you have no understanding of what they mean, first you'll understand the context, and then you'll start diving in deeper to like what the history is of these individual words. And that's kind of how I, how I understood what crypto means understanding the technicalities behind it. And then the technicalities lead you to like, oh, Satoshi created this because of the OA crisis. Oh, what happened in the OA crisis? Oh, how does politics work in this? And it just becomes this endless rabbit hole of information where you start realizing that the more you read and the, the, the more you learn, the less you really understand about it, right? But so then it becomes, this, then you get this existential feeling, right? And you're like, oh, wow, is this really going to be the world that I believe. And then you kind of have to let go at points too and understand that you can only control 
what's in front of you and maybe like the the immediate surrounding but you you aren't able to consume everything so you kind of have to eventually understand the general idea again going back to like Naval's idea of being in the top 20 percentile for five for to three to five different things and then just finding what really interests you and where your niche is I sat around in crypto reading and consuming information for hours a day for three, four years until in March of 2021, this Mooncats rediscovery happened. At the time, it was called the second oldest NFT. My background with antiques came into play. I was able to t- then take that that past skill with the understanding of what I had, apply it, make investments. That led me to selling Mooncats at Sotheby's Auction House, which then gave me more prestige, right? And then you keep applying from there. But I've learned this, and I think I think you agree with this the same, is that in today's world, unless you're very, very early to an industry, like an overall industry, um, you need to uh, niche down first, become mm-hmm. a, a micro leader. And then over time, if you become the leader of a micro community, then you could become then you could become the lesser rung, but in a higher area, right? And so then you could keep leveling up from that. So it was from a just for, went from an investor understanding and information to then becoming a, a contributing member of a community to then becoming a contributing community member of a classification and then eventually the next steps then you become a leader in the overall macro space right and then you could kind of keep going from there and i think that's something that encourages me to continually go um, and to never quit trying to understand information but also be able to um, kind of put blinders on to some of the some of the larger things that are happening in NFTs and just be able to, to focus down because you're never going to be able to consume everything. I thought that I can. And I might have had an anxiety heart attack yeah. if I try. <laughs> Niche down. No, I, I really like that concept. Jake, you've been amazing, man. My last question for you, for myself and all the viewers out there, what is your belief in terms of the ratio that you should be out there consuming versus producing content media information all that stuff at the beginning you're going to want to try to consume as much as possible this is what i do down the rabbit hole 10 hours a day probably it depends also on your life circumstances consume as much as you can for a a week or two but after that then start dabbling in it start buying buy crypto for example start buying crypto in small amounts put fifty dollars in start transferring the fifty dollars around right if you lose 50 bucks yes it sucks but it's not the end of the day for for the majority of people start experimenting start dabbling and then the scale begins to move right you go from 100 100 of just consumption of learning to then you go 90 percent learning 10 percent experimentation and then as the scale pushes past then your experimentation becomes the learning right mm-hmm. so i don't now, now I understand the majority of the fundamentals. Yes, there's going to be new things I'm going to have to catch up on. But my experimentation is my learning, which is also now my work at the same time. So now it's completely shift. And it took many years to get to where that is. And of course, the slide or the pendulum will come back at some point. Something will put you on your ass. You have no idea what it is. Took It just like came out of right field. But right now, um, it's moved to... The, the learn the ex- experimenting first, which leads to learning, which then becomes the application uh, to my work. Boom. Boom. There it is, ladies and gentlemen. You heard it from the crypto podcast <laughs> wizard himself. Jake, where, uh, where can the viewers find you, man? 
I'm easy at Jake Gallen, J-A-K-E-G-A-L-L-E-N underscore on Twitter. That is me. Uh, I'm at Jake Gallen on Instagram. Be careful. There's like 4,000 scam accounts out there. Um, best best way to find everything about me is just jakegallen.com. YouTube page is there. The podcast is there. I'm pretty simple. Reach out and DM me on Twitter. That's probably the I'm most active there. Uh, email is the same, jakegallen.com. I'm pretty easy to find. Easy. And definitely for you, for those of you guys that want to learn more about crypto and, and that whole space, Jake puts out some of the best content, I would say, on Twitter and your podcast. Twitter, podcast, YouTube. Yeah, it's a little niche down, but I, I tend to talk about the broader space as well. Love it, man. Thanks so much for coming on. Man. Nah, thanks, man. Appreciate Great opportunity. It.